Ron Eckert, and my name is Michael Becker. I'm the Director of Operations here at Sacred Heart Catholic Church, and I get to do a lot. He gets to do a lot. It's a really fun time together, and we run this place, sort of. We do, it's and great. then sometimes the last Thursday of the month, unless it's November or December, we uh, take some time and walk through the catechism, a couple paragraphs at a time, 50 uh, paragraphs, and today we're going to get all the way to paragraph 600. Um, which means that we are on our 12th episode, uh, and I think next, so in February, that'll be a whole year that we have been doing this with you, and I hope you found it as fruitful as we have. Um, I think we're both kind of tired. It's been a, a heck of a couple of weeks, just busy post-Christmas wrap-up, you know, gas lines, just you never know what's coming from day to day, and uh, but... Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is with us. We're going to be talking about him and his public ministry and all sorts of good stuff today on the show. And, you know, the nice thing is at the heart of it all, and why we keep going all the time, is our Lord is right in the midst of all this with us, continues to give us himself in the Eucharist, and that's why Sacred Heart Catholic Church, Catholic Parish exists. And so why don't we kick off with a prayer and... Uh, yeah, talk about anything else that's been going on real quick. Because I do like our witty banter at the uh, beginning. And I've got something for you. So Ooh, I'm get, kind of excited get, about let's it. Let's get started. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Lord, we thank you for your presence amongst us, for your great love that caused you to become one of us, to become Emmanuel, God with us. We ask you to help us to continue to bear our crosses each and every day, knowing that as we bear our crosses, trust in you, we may bear great fruit. We ask this through the intercession of your perfect disciple, our Blessed Mother, who takes us by the hand and leads us ever closer to you as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary. Pray for us. Saint Joseph. Pray for us. Saint Angela Marici. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So before we get started, yes, I have to say, Father, every once in a while, I'm a little bit jealous that you are a priest, and I am not. Um, for, for a variety of different things, but there was one thing that really stuck out to me today that I wanted to show, share with you. Please do. So I was getting ready for the day, and, you know, as I always do, I put on my snazzy outfit each day. It's a nice tie. And something that my mom has brought up, because she's been watching our show, mm -hmm. she said, do you pay attention to what shirt you wear when you do the catechism series? Because you've worn like the same blue shirt in like three of them. And I'm like, uh, no, I just kind of stick with my rotation. I kind of have this mental rotation of which color shirt I wear, which tie combo I wear. She said, well, let me give you a list of what colors you wore so you can wear a different color. And then for Christmas, she got me different colored shirts. And she said, now you have more variety for your catechism series. And so when I was getting dressed this morning, I literally had to go, what shirt haven't I worn? What one did my mom put on the list? Which one did I get for Christmas? So this was one of the Christmas shirts. It's a so I'm wearing shirt. a different color. And this is where it leads to me being jealous. You don't have to pick out your wardrobe every day. Which, to me, I know like when you're in school and our students here, they bemoan and whine that they have to wear a uniform. And when I was in high school, I whined that I had to wear a uniform. But now that I'm 30... It is probably would be one of the most freeing things ever to say, you know what? I wore black yesterday. I get to wear black again today. It is true. No thought in the matter at all. The only thoughts I put into it, um, I basically have two different pairs of shoes that I wear. And if it's going to be wet or cold outside, I wear my boots instead of my dress shoes. 
because um, they're like dress boots. Um, I can kind of mix it up a little bit on the socks. Uh, people have been very kind to give me a lot of these. It's sock religious, mm-hmm. um, which is just great. I have, I think one of the newest pairs I have, well, I got some Sacred Heart ones for Christmas, which are lovely. I have St. Josephine Bikita now. Mm. They're like teal, so they're very, very bright, which, as I found out at Mass today, is Arden Beal's favorite color. That's right. I go, heard her say that. Go, go figure. But the nice thing is, anything can go with black. It's true. Because you can highlight the coolest color socks that you want. And it still looks good with the black. Well, I appreciate that. Um, except white socks. <laughs> you can't no. wear white socks with black shoes. It just doesn't work that way. Um, what else do I... The only other variety, which which kind of collar? I'm just wearing the front tab today. You could go all the all-around tab. Um, or, I guess, the, the cassock. And you could also pick the sweater. And I and this one, this was a gift from my brother and sister-in-law and two nephews, Owen and Noah, for... I think it was a combination birthday Christmas gift. And... I picked this one because it's kind of warmer, and it was a cold day today. Here in Man, we are both showing off our Christmas gifts. I know, the, it's one, lovely. One and, and notice it's a little bit blue, too, so yeah. that's kind of exciting. I don't wear blue with the black that often because apparently that's a fashion faux pas. This is a great thing. I don't care. Like, other than the white socks. What, and you have no yeah. one that you need to impress. That's a, Well, I will say, it is nice being a married man and just walking out the door and saying, I don't have to impress anyone today. That's good. I'm not looking for another girl. I have a girl. <laughs> and she actually complimented me on the shirt today. So I did impress the one girl that actually matters. There you go. I think you're in good shape. And, yeah. you know, if I impress people, I hope it's not because of my clothes. Because if that's what's impressing them, they have a very low threshold for being impressed. So yes, indeed. It's all good. I'm happy that this is our witty banter at the beginning today. Hey, I, I planned this ahead of time, and I'm like, I know what the witty banter is going to be today because I'm standing here looking at my shirts and tie combos and going, what combo do I have to wear today? That's and, pretty good. And you know, it's funny, because you know, I'll just bring this up because I think I ought to. Um, I don't know if a lot of you know, I'm super excited to welcome to town um, a new friend, and it's going to be a new friend of the parish, uh, Father Tyson Wood. If you were at uh, Mass at 10.30 this past Sunday, got to introduce him to the whole parish. He is the new chief of chaplains at the VA hospital. Um, he is a former Lutheran minister who uh, converted, became Catholic, um, and he is married with three children. Um, and I'm excited to get to know him, his wife, his kids at some point, but just it's been so good to get to know him. But uh, we've had some conversations here lately. I've been reading some things just about celibacy and everything else. And it's just, it's interesting, like, as you talk about, obviously, Father Wood, where's clerics, you know, but it's like the... the he ma- still doesn't have to pick out his clothes. That's See, true, I just know. being the priest is nice. And to be fair, you could, like, wear a uniform and no, wear no, the no. same thing no, every no. day. Think about this. If I wore the same thing every single day, right, and I had no I reason to... I know. They would, th- I mean... People would give you a hard time. People know you wear the same thing every single it's day. True. They would go... You wore that yesterday. And Did I, you wash that? And it, maybe I had yeah. seven of the same thing. It just doesn't work the same way. It's true. And I even have some slight variety. Like, I have, like, three or four sweaters I wear. Like, I have a little bit of a rotation of sweaters. Still, though, from year to year, someone decides, like, oh, you need a new sweater because you're just wearing that same one all the time. You're right. It's, like, just the way we are as human beings. Like, there's got to be some variety. But when, like, you have a uniform to wear, yeah. people don't care. They don't pay as but, much attention. In my job, director of operations do not have the explicit uniform. Maybe I could add one in. That'd be sweet. Like, make it part of the job description. Here, you'll wear this polo. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, hey, I will admit, though, because I have kind of a Boy Scout brain as an yeah. Eagle Scout. So I always think of my shirt and ties like my Class A. Mm-hmm. 
And then, like, I wear my Sacred Heart polos like my Class B. That makes sense. So it's like my different types of uniforms. And I've got my T-shirts like my Class C, depending on what activity I'm I doing. I think that's good. And I mean, and really, we kind of go through the same thing in clerics. Like, I wear my cassock when it's a bit of more of a formal occasion. Or if I'm going to be going to the VA uh, cemetery for a burial. or Like, I, I'll wear my cassock for, for more formal things. But, like, for day-to-day -day use, I just, I really like just the regular clerics. Although... I wouldn't necessarily call this, would this be class B, class A? I don't know. I mean, you don't, I mean, I would say clerics, class, I mean, cassock, class A, like that's the yeah, dressy. That makes sense. Class B. And you do have a class C because when you go out golfing and stuff, you wear, you wear oh, a polo yeah. and slacks. Yeah. I, I like to tell people that when they ask, like, when do you have to wear a clerics? Like, as long as it makes sense, I wear them. I don't wear them to the beach. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, otherwise, like, yeah, I'm going to wear them to the airport. Why? Because the airport, you're inside and you're just flying on a plane and, it's good for people to see actual priests out there. So, um, how many times have you been in an airport and somebody just catches you for confession? It's happened quite a few times. Because so. you you fly quite a bit, so you yeah you're in and out. Yeah, I know it doesn't happen as much anymore. Fatima, Peoria, Fatima, that's true. Yeah. Cruise, it's going on a cruise. Everyone makes fun of it. <laughs> I'm excited, taking a vacation. It's gonna be lovely. Okay, should we actually dive into the catechism? I guess so. And I guess so. Okay. All right, so a reminder, because it's been a long time since we met, because it was pre-Christmas, which was a week or two early. Yeah. And now we're, you know, so we're a month in change at this point. Mm -hmm. um, we are still going through kind of the profession of faith part about the creed. And so we are in, we are wrapping up. Let me actually find it, what part of the creed we're in. We just talked about Mary. There it is. Um, we're, so we're talking about the mystery of Christ's life, right? So we're talking about Christ's life, um, and we've kind of talked about his uh, early life, kind of the, the hidden years. We talked a little bit about his birth. We talked about the um, presentation in the temple, kind of all the stories that we get. And if you're kind of moving along with, I've actually been thinking about the, the luminous mysteries as we've kind of done yeah, this. Yeah, that's fair. You know, we're very much at the kind of the proclamation of the kingdom. the kingdom and moving on towards the sorrowful mysteries today. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we get a really great kickoff here with paragraph 551. The title of this is The Keys of the Kingdom. And this is one of my favorite parts of scripture because yeah. I think it's just so Catholic because mm -hmm. you talk to Protestants about this passage and they recognize that it's there, obviously, but they just don't give it a lot of credence or a lot of time. They don't look at it. Because, you know, they have their passages that they really highlight and we have our passages that we really highlight. So this is always a really fun one to, to talk about, and it's uh, the time when, you know, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say another prophet. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter steps up, being the very brash person that he is, always to kind of lead the charge, whether he thinks about it or not, says, you know, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and through that proclamation of Peter, he receives this office, this, this leader of the apostles, Jesus gives him the keys to the kingdom of heaven, right? Which is incredibly important. And we know what keys do, right? Because we still do this today. When the mayor gives somebody the keys to the city, I haven't heard about that in a while. I guess it still happens every once in a while. I would assume so. But I've never we, been given the keys. we know it happens, right? You get the keys to the city. It's more just symbolic, but what does it symbolize? They're in charge for the day, mm -hmm. right? Well, by Jesus giving Peter the keys, he's saying, when I leave, you're in charge. And the keys are still incredibly important symbols of the church today. They're on the Vatican flag, 
which represents right the authority that they have on the Pope has here on earth. If you come into our church, St. Peter is almost always holding keys. So in the stained glass window, St. Peter, first the one nearest the altar on the right, mm-hmm. um, he's holding keys. And so we recognize that this meaning of this giving of the keys is that he is given this temporal authority to govern the church here on earth, especially as Jesus is getting ready to go to heaven. The one thing I would also point out is when you combine 551 and 552, so what is Jesus doing? He gives the 12 a share in his authority and sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. And then when you jump ahead to 552, you know, what's Jesus' response to Peter's confession of faith? That he, you know, Sam and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our Lord then declared to him, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, there's two things there. With the, he sent them out, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against them. I read something years ago from Phil Waller, who I like to read on catholicculture.org. And he said, you know, an important thing to recognize is gates are in the defensive position. And notice that Jesus sends them out. That basically, as the church, we're not here to just play defense. Like, we're not just kind of like, hunkering down and protecting our buildings and our 401ks. Like, we're supposed to go out and, like, you know, go out and proclaim the good news and go out there and heal and drive out the devil. And that the gates of the netherworld won't prevail against the offense of the church. And he said, it's like, it's whenever the church kind of, like, rests, like, you know, rests on her laurels and just kind of sits back in comfort um, and just sort of like in the midst of what she already has, that's when we get into trouble. Like basically what we're supposed to do is go out to all the world all the world, and proclaim the good news. Like Jesus wants us on the offensive, not on the defensive. You know, it's like the best, uh, what is it, the best defense is a good offense. Like we need to keep moving. It's the beautiful thing about like the dynamism of the church. Uh, you know, and, and those keys is like that authority to go out there, yes, to drive the devil out of people's lives, to heal them, to forgive sins, to bring the sacramental economy about. And so it's like he gives us these things, you know, through Peter and his successors, you know, to the church to go out there and like drive out the devil. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a cool thought. Cause I think so often it's like, we think like, oh, like hell is attacking us and they won't prevail because the gates, but like when you're walking by a big spooky mansion, which we don't often do, but just imagine the point. Like, There's a couple in Salzburg. Yeah, like the gates in front of the house don't come out and attack you. You know, that's the thing to remember. It's like gates are a defensive. They keep things out. Like the power of our faith is going to overcome the powers of, the dar- of darkness. And one big way they're supposed to overcome the powers of darkness actually kind of leads into one of the last phrases Jesus says in this spot, right? I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus is giving them authority, the apostles, specifically Peter as the leader, to bind and loose. Bind and loose what? Bind and loose sins. So the um, successors of the apostles, the bishops and the priests, have the authority to forgive sins on Christ's behalf in persona Christi. So what better way to be on that offensive than to go to confession for the priest to be able to give absolution, to say, I am forgiving you your sins 
And Jesus, saying that, we, that the priests and bishops have this authority, is recognizing that forgiveness of sins. So this isn't just Father talking. This is Father talking on behalf of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is speaking through Father. And so what better way to defeat the gates of Hades than to destroy sin? And ultimately, by destroying sin, you're destroying the death that comes from sin, eternal damnation and hell. Absolutely. And I will just say, too, just one more little aside. I do love hearing confessions. And I'll tell you, like, Wednesdays are a funny day for me. Because, like, I don't come in until, like, the early afternoon. Because I'm here pretty late. Like, last night I was in the confessional for a solid two hours. Um, and by that point, you know, it's going to be like after 8 o'clock at night. I'm kind of hungry. I haven't eaten in a long time. But I've learned, it's like, hey, dum-dum, like, you get to eat dinner all the time, right? But, like, look at what you get to be a part of right now. It's like, I get to see this, like, resurrection moment. Like, all these people coming in, bearing these heavy burdens. And it's like, hey, you get to, like, see them released from that and get up and go forth. And it's just incredible. And that's why confessions at Sacred Heart are just like Chick-fil-A every day but Sunday. So after the daily mass. I like mass, that. I yeah. really like that. Have you heard did you, you say that before? I haven't heard you I've say that. I've been saying that for a long I time. I mean, I say, I say every day but Sunday, but yeah. it never clicked to yeah. compare to Chick-fil-A. Just like Chick-fil-A, every day but Sunday. Nice. And like, you just, just come and like, I'll be in there until there's no more line. And sometimes it means I'm in there for a long time. Sometimes it means I'm only in there for an hour. Like You just never know, but it's just so awesome. And like that's the beautiful thing about God's grace. He wants to save you from your sins, just like he wants to save me from my sins. That's why I think one of the best ways to be a good confessor, like the one who hears confessions, is to be a good penitent, someone who goes to confession. And so I try to go every two or three weeks. Um, it helps. It's a good thing. It keeps things in check. Uh, so yeah, don't wait until you're murdering people and robbing banks to come to confession. Just come. And if it's been a long time, honestly, I think the hardest part is just getting over the threshold after a long time. After that, it's great. I promise I'm not going to yell at you. In fact, I'll be like just really happy that you came, even if it's been a really long time. So come to confession. Yeah, the line is the thing that always would, would get me. Wednesday nights, I will say, are not the best if you don't like standing in lines. True. But, but at least you get to be in adoration. And you get to be in adoration. And Father won't... I know some priests, unfortunately, they'll say like, sorry, I have to cut off the line here. Wednesday night, there's no line cutting. No. Like... Father goes until it's done. Actually, almost every day you go until you're done. Yeah, the only time I'm going to cut off the line, I mean, if there's some, I have to get to so-and-so. But it's rare. I mean, I try to make it so if I'm in the confessional, I'm in there until we're done. Which is nice that we do it after Mass. Because a lot of times you have to cut it off when Mass is about to begin. And that's always tricky. But by doing an after Mass, you've already done the other important stuff. Oh, yeah. It's like that one's out of the way. I've done Mass for the day, and I can... Soul focus on that move on Saturdays to the morning after the 8 a.m. rather than before the 4.30 was one of the best things I think we've ever done. Because like, going in there at 3 o'clock, we have 4.30 mass. Like, I really don't want to cut anybody off. Like That is a terrible feeling as a priest. And since it's after the 8 o'clock mass, I can just hear until we're done. And I don't think, I think there's been maybe one time where it kind of like butted up against baptisms at 11. But that's really Man, weird. if you're going from 9 o'clock to 11 on a Saturday it morning. It does happen. I mean, it, not every Saturday. but And, you know, I was thinking about this before, too. Not to compare myself to St. John Vianney. But I was thinking about this. Uh, go like, ahead and do it. But it's like, who are you going to pray to when you are in a long line? And I was thinking, wonder how many people who went to St. John Vianney for confessions. Steve's here in confessions like eight hours a day, right? That means that he's got eight hours of lines. So I was thinking, there's got to be some of those people who became saints 
maybe say like Saint whoever stood in line waiting for Saint John Vianney. You might not not know their name, but there's somebody in heaven who went to him for confession and waited in line for a long time. Pray for that patience and offer up that sacrifice. Oh, and I'm sure because it was Saint John Vianney, people were like three hours. Who cares? Who cares? Like, that guy's going to read my heart. Although, that's kind of a scary thought, though, too. <laughs> it's I don't good. think you've been able to do that yet. Not that I know of. Uh, I, I want to know either. Man, we've gotten through two paragraphs. <laughs> and we're, we're 25 minutes in. Yeah, we had a lot of banter at the beginning, too. All right, so now we're continuing to move kind of on that theme of the uh, Luminous Mysteries, and we get to the Transfiguration, right? So, Transfiguration, if you don't know what the story is, Jesus goes up on Mount Tabor. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, with kind of the inner circle, inner circle of the apostles, uh, Peter, James, and John. He goes up on Mount Tabor, and then he shines like light coming out of him. And Isaiah and Elijah, Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah. All right, I was close. Um, <laughs> appear and they have this kind of conversation. Um, <laughs> and so, what is this? What is the point of this story? Well, I mean. We're leading up to the Passion. We're getting pretty close to the Passion at this mm -hmm. point. I don't remember how far um, ahead of it we are. It depends on which of the accounts you're getting there. Because I want to say it's like Mark 9. I mean, basically, like, you know, the Transfiguration helps to remove the scandal of the cross. Um, you know, where, like, they see him in his glory, and then he's going to be dying on the cross. It's like, you know, but this is the one we saw up there. The one thing I'll say, though, that I've always kind of found fascinating about the Transfiguration, and we'll read this quote from St. Augustine, too, because I love it. Go for it. Um, but when you think about, you know, the you got Peter, James, and John. They go up. They see the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter still denies him three times. James still runs away. John at least comes back. But I think sometimes we're tempted to think, oh, if only I could see once, like see you in your glory. I would never do anything. It's like, well... Peter still ran away, and so did James, and James was pretty bold. Um, but it's a thing about like seeing amazing things. It's good. Sometimes God gives us that gift. But don't underestimate just like the power of like daily faith. Even when you don't get your socks knocked off with some huge revelation, like you, know, you, you need to keep going. And it's like love will compel you on and keep you going all the time. But I'll read from 556. They quote uh, St. Augustine. says this, Peter did not yet understand this when he wanted, oh, I'm sorry, about coming back down the mountain. Peter did not yet understand this when he wanted to remain with Christ on the mountain. It has been reserved for you, Peter, but for after death. For now, Jesus says, go down to toil on earth, to serve on earth, to be scorned and crucified on earth. Life goes, life, capital L, goes down to be killed. Bread, capital B, goes down to suffer hunger. The way, capital W, goes down to be exhausted on his journey. The spring goes down to suffer thirst and you refuse to suffer? So basically, it's like you think about the Mount of Transfiguration, right? We know Peter, like, wants to build three tents. He wants to stay there, which makes sense. We all have kind of, like, our moments sometimes of, like, just you're seeing things clearly, and you just want to stay on top of the mountain. It's like coming towards the end of a retreat. It's like, oh, I never want to leave. Or when I've gone to Fatima, it's like, oh, why do I have to go back? But you think about it, it's like, look at it from Jesus' perspective. You know, he's got to go back down to do what? To enter into his passion. Like, you can see why Peter would want to stay. It's awesome. There's Jesus with Elijah and Moses. But Jesus himself, like, it's so self-emptying to come back down and then, like, you know, giving them another passion prediction and moving on towards Jerusalem. Uh, it's like, well, if Christ is willing to do that, we need to be willing to do that, too. Yeah. And he's coming down to die on the cross, yeah. right? I mean, it even talks here um, in 555, 
about Jesus with Moses and Elijah talking about the salvation through the way of the cross. Mm-hmm. So they're, the tradition holds that they were even talking about the cross is coming and what that means for the salvation of mankind. And so this is not this is a pretty big stakes here. I mean, yeah, I would love to stay up on the mountain, you know? Of and course. really, I have more of the inclination of, can I get away yeah. to the mountain? It's more like, okay, today was kind of a crappy day. I'd rather go up on the mountain and just go hide away um, than kind of the, the flip side. But, yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, but Jesus went but back Jesus down. Jesus went back down. And yeah. he was, think about what he knew was on the horizon and he knew he was going down to do. The one other thing I would just say, you know, just kind of like take the opportunity because this is one of my favorite things to emphasize. Learn from this, this moment to this transfiguration. Take time to pray. Step aside. Be like Peter, James, and John. Go up the mountain. Like come up Lumen Christi Mountain. Go into the church and be with him and be quiet with him. Because it's, it's really hard to see his glory when you never actually step aside with him at all. And, you know, I try to make the holy hour every day that I'm here at Sacred Heart and go in there and spend an hour with our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. It's incredible. Now, he's not, like, showing me his full glory and everything else, but it's like I get to go be with him, and I got to make the time to do that, and amazing things happen. Yeah, I got to come back down, you know, from the sanctuary and get back to work. But do take the time to climb the mountain, too. Like, go on a retreat. Take time to go pray. Be in our church. Be on our property, like be with him in the Blessed Sacrament as often as you can. And then as the Catechism goes through, now this is 557 to 560, we do get his descent down the mountain, and then he's basically headed towards Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem to basically start Holy Week, right? Yeah. Or this is, this is Palm Sunday when he's entering Jerusalem. People are yelling, you know, Hosanna in the highest. They're going to make him king, right? They're laying the palm branches down in front of him. They are worshiping him as that Messiah, that Savior, not recognizing that he is the Messiah, not as an earthly king, but as a heavenly king. Um, And so with kind of that entrance into Jerusalem, entrance in the city, we open up Holy Week, and that kind of leads us into the next big section here of talking about his passion and death. The one thing I would say before we move on to that is just in 558, you know, it quotes when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem and he says, you know, would that even today you knew the things that make for peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. Like he, he wants to gather them all in. Like he wants, you know, it's just like, it's like with parents when you just want your kids to be good because you know that's what's going to make them happy. You know, it's like he wants them to come into him. And I guess the, the incredible thing is that you know, even when we had gone astray like sheep, he still comes after us. He still, you know, even knowing full well he's going to be laying down his life in, in the passion, he keeps going anyway. And I would say, too, you know, his entry into Jerusalem as the Messiah, the King, still it's done in complete humility. And I just put a little star by 563 in the in brief section. Where it says, no one, whether shepherd or wise man, can approach God here below except by kneeling before the manger of Bethlehem and adoring him hidden in the weakness of a newborn child. Like there's something to be said of like we need to be humble before God, but recognize the fact too, like he's humble before us. His entry on Palm Sunday is done in a humble way, riding on a donkey, you know, into the city. Um, How does he come to us day to day? In the mass, under the form of bread and wine. I mean, that's humble. 
And so like just recognizing like we need to approach him with humility who has already approached us with humility. And I like that. And even in the brief um, 565 talking again about his baptism, you know, he was baptized as the servant, right? This isn't something that he needed to do. He humbled himself. And as you talked about in your homily the other day, in the really kind of disgusting, dirty Jordan River. It I is mean, gross. It is. I mean, it just, yeah. And he allowed, you know, John the Baptist to even said, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals to do this baptism. And God revealing, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Also at the transfiguration, he reveals the same thing. Mm -hmm. So kind of at that beginning of his ministry with the baptism, God's saying, look at this humility. This is my son. But also when Jesus is ready to go to Jerusalem for his death, God is also revealing this is my son. So at those times of kind of the beginning of that, that true work, those two really large times, and in humility, God is revealing, this is my son. And there's like this slight difference at the baptism. He says, you know, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And it's almost like the baptism, it's like this, this theophany, this revelation of God, like this you know, like, like this strengthening for Christ as he goes down and like accepts the mission, like going down in the waters of baptism, the Heavenly Father says, you're my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. But then on transfiguration, it's like that's a strengthening more so. It's like Peter, James, and John. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Um, like we need that strengthening too, and God provides it both at the baptism and the transfiguration. Exactly. Fascinating. So 571 starts Article 4 of Part 1 on the Profession of Faith, um, continuing through the Creed. So we're entering into this next part, right? <coughs> the title of Article 4 is, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. So we're getting into kind of the passion narrative at this point. Um, and so first we have to understand that, you know, this is a, this is a mystery, right? This whole thing of... Why did Jesus have to do this? Why did he have to die? He rose from the dead. Why was it to be done in this way? I mean, I, I even struggle with that. Like, come on, God. There wasn't any other way to do this. There wasn't any other way other than allowing your son to be killed in this way, at this time, in this humiliation, with this amount of pain. And really, it's, it's a mystery, right? Obviously, this was the best way if there were other ways, I think people debate about that. Mm -hmm. But obviously, God being God and all-knowing and all-powerful and all-loving, like this was the best way to do it. And we have to trust God in that. One of my favorite phrases I've heard to describe what, kind of what you're getting at here, um, it's like, you know, uh, Father Gregory Pine, who talks to Matt Fratt a lot, and he's on Godsplaining. I know he's working on an advanced degree in Switzerland, I think. Um, and it's all, like it has a lot to do with the fittingness of of the way that the Paschal mystery comes about. It's like, yeah, he could have acted in a lot of ways, but this is the most fitting possible way for God to act. We I mean, think like the way you know everything ties together, where you know man fell you know at a tree, and God redeems us dying on a tree, you know, and and this all happened in a garden, and he dies and was buried in a garden, and like just. The way that everything comes about, and it's like, you know, even though our first parents were disobedient, it's by the obedience of Christ. Like, everything fits together in this, like, beautiful symphony. Um, 
I know sometimes, you know, it's like we want, especially in our technological age, we want things to be quick, convenient, you know, comfortable. That's just not the way that the best of things work. You know, it's like the, the fittingness of all of this, of our Lord you know, coming to us, humbling himself, going through it. Was it easy? Absolutely not. But that's just how much he loves us. When you think about that, like showing that amount of love by going through all of this. I think, you know, as you think about this, as we kind of start to move into, um, as the Catechism describes the fact that, so 575, many of Jesus' deeds and words constituted a sign of contradiction, but more so for the religious authorities in Jerusalem, whom the Gospel, according to John, often calls simply the Jews, than for ordinary people of God. To be sure, Christ's relations with the Pharisees were not exclusively polemical. Some Pharisees uh, warned him of the danger he was uh, courting, Jesus praises some of them, like the scribe of Mark 12, 34, and denies several and dines several times at their homes. Jesus endorses some of the teachings imparted by this religious elite of God's people, the resurrection of the dead, certain forms of piety, like almsgiving, fasting, and prayer, the custom of addressing God as Father, and the centrality of the commandment to love God and neighbor. The thing is, so it's like, yeah, from the beginning, like he his love comes into this. You know, some of the things like the authorities really like and are appreciative of, but at the same time, like they didn't just like kill him because he was a groovy dude. Like he 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 questioned or not just questioned challenged. challenged is the better word. Yeah, he challenged a lot of like just like held way of going about things, um, and they just weren't willing to accept that. And so we're going to see more and more of that the the challenge that Jesus poses to especially the religious authorities and how we, I mean, we know what's going to happen. And I think the next section really shows this challenge. So kind of at the beginning, they're showing why they even wanted to put him to death, right? Yeah. So Jesus contradicting the, the Pharisees and contradicting almost like the culture of Israel at, the, at this point. But then in 577, it starts talking about Jesus in the law. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, this is where it really starts to hit home that Jesus was really coming to make waves, right? That, I mean, it says right here in the, the quote from, I don't know, where is this quote from? 329, from Matthew. That's the, from the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, from Matthew the Sermon on the Mount. That, do you not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. So what's happening is Jesus is taking all the prophets and all the law, and he's raising the ante. He's saying that because of your hardness of hearts, this was allowed or this was done, specifically when it comes to divorce, right? That was a, the really mm-hmm. big thing. Moses said, write a bill of divorce, give it to your wife, and, you know, done deal. And she's like, no, 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 that wasn't so from the beginning, right? Man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. There's no divorce. This isn't meant in God's plan or providence. So he's taking everything and raising it higher to what the law was supposed to be. And obviously, the, the Jews, these are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're looking at the scripture. This is their lives. This is their whole livelihood. And without modern technology, think about how much more you would focus on the scripture at that time. So who is Jesus to come in here and say, no, 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 we're going to stop listening to what Moses exactly said, or Elijah, or Isaiah, or any of these prophets, and I'm coming here to tell you something different that is better and greater in the fulfillment of everything else. You got to be a little ticked off too. Sure. Well, I mean, it's, I'm try, I don't remember exactly where it says it, but I mean, 
he uses that that formula on the Sermon on the Mount, because what you're reading there, it's from the Sermon on the mm-hmm. Mount, where he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. I mean, you know, we hear about these different places where it's like he taught as one with authority, like an authority, like able to, you know, like an author, like able to to write it out. It's one of those things where he, if he is who he says he is and he's God, that's appropriate and that's the way to go. But if he's not, you know, it's like, it sounds like a madman. Um, but you think about it, it's like Jesus came, he had to call us to our original holiness and then some and, and some more, you know. One of the, you have heard it said, but I tell you, like you have heard it said, you shall not kill. But I tell you, you know, whoever hates his brother in his heart has already, you know, committed, has already killed, has already committed murder. You know, the thing is, like, he doesn't just want a show on the outside. He wants the law to be written on our hearts. You know, and so it's like, you know, talking about the religious zeal and things like that with the Pharisees. You know, they're super concerned with a lot of external type things that are really a lot easier to deal with. You know, it's like dietary regulations. Well, it's like, okay, I can, I can cut out dairy, so to speak, and then that's done. It's hard and fast, and I can let that be, but my heart remains untouched. Um, Jesus doesn't just want that. Like, he wants something that goes all the way to the very core of our being, and raises up. So he's come, you know, as I said, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to go all the way to the very depths of our hearts. And I think 580 is really, I'm going to go ahead and read 580 because I think it speaks to what you just said. The perfect fulfillment of the law could be the work of none but the divine legislator, born subject to the law in the person of the Son. In Jesus, the law no longer appears engraved on tables of stone, but upon the heart of the servant who becomes a covenant to the people because he will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus fulfills the law to the point of taking upon himself the curse of the law incurred by those who do not abide by the things written in the book of the law and do them. For his death took place to redeem them from the transgressions under the first covenant. So even though they were harping law, 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 Obviously, there's a lot of people not following the law. I mean, think about the very first law that God gave us. Do not eat of the tree of the center of the garden. Well, guess what? <laughs> the rest is history, right? And think about, you know, not worshiping pagan images. And when Moses goes up to actually receive the law, he comes down, and what do they do? Golden cow, yeah. right? It's like, well, it's one thing to harp on the law and say, look it, it's right here, follow it. But then you're not following it. So Jesus is actually trying to say, no, no, no. We're not going to put this on stone tablets. This needs to be in your heart. This needs to be something that you believe and you follow in here. And not only am I going to give you that new law, I'm going to redeem the old law, redeem all the sins of you disobeying the old law by dying on the cross. And every time you break the new commandment, I'm going to redeem you on the cross as well. So he's saying, yeah, you failed out the old law. I've come to fulfill the law, but I've also come to forgive all the transgressions of the law that ever happened. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, it's like, you know, to raise us to the next level. You know, when you think about it, it's not like the type of law that you're going to just go ahead and break when you can get away with it. Because like our Lord knows what's going on all the time, right? I mean, even with the gospel at Mass today about, you know, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a bed or under a bushel. Like, our Lord knows what's going on. Like, nothing secret is going to stay secret. It'll all come out. And so when it comes to following, like, the law about which we've been made, 
It's not to try to see what we can get away with. It's to make sure that we're free. So that, let's say, let's say I have a problem with, like, unjust anger, right? Like, he wants us to go above and beyond. Like, you have heard it said, you shall not kill, but I tell you, you know, whoever holds on to hatred in his heart has already killed his brother. Okay, like, he doesn't want you, like, just on the outside to look fine, but you're murdering someone in your heart all the time. No, he wants you to be free. And so that it's not like the first chance you get, you're going to slight your brother. He came to bring healing. He came to drive out the devil. He came to bring us the kind of peace that will ultimately unify us. And so, yeah, like that, that being written on our hearts, it makes it living and effective. It's not like we're just following a book. Like he, he wants us to be living participants as, parts of his, as a part of his body, you know, living in that joy forever. And, uh, yeah, just it, it raises the law to a whole, like, level of freedom that's just incredible. And then, kind of moving on in Please. the catechism, the next part that he kind of talks about lifting up and raising up is the temple, right? So this is, correct me if I'm wrong, This is this the temple that David built, or was that destroyed in the Babylonian exile? No, destroyed in the Babylonian yeah, this is the second temple. So this so. is the second temple, but still, huge temple built for the worship of God, right, with David, this is where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. It was stolen in the, the Babylonian captivity. Indiana Jones has it now. We don't know where it is. Um, but what he says that's kind of outrageous to everyone, right? He says, um, let's see if I can find it real quick. Um, he's going to destroy the temple and build it up again in three days, right? This is his kind of big story, especially as is leading to his passion. And obviously everyone's like, what? What are you talking about? Build up, this, build up this temple in three days. This took however many hundreds of years to build. And the glory of this temple can't be fulfilled. Now, it, it's not Jesus talking bad about the temple or not talking down about the temple. Obviously, his parents took him to the temple as, you know, the law prescribed at the 40th, 40, 40 days. days after birth. Presentation. Obviously, he drove out the tax collectors in the temple. Why are you making my father's house a den of thieves? So he's acknowledging the fact just by his life and as any good Jew would that the temple mm -hmm. is important. But we're not going to need this temple in the same way. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I think even John says he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his own, of his body. the temple of his own body, recognizing that you come to the temple, why? To have this connection to God. And many of these ceremonies could only be done in the temple because that was the house, the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt. But now with Christ's death and resurrection and his body raising, being risen from the dead, we can come to any church. Mm -hmm. Jesus is present. So it's not only Jesus present here, in this one, or God being present here in this one location at the Ark of the Covenant, now he's wherever the Eucharist is. And so he's extended that temple, in a way, to wherever we celebrate the Eucharist. Absolutely. I mean, I would even say, too, I'm in complete agreement with that, and you can't really get closer to him than being close to him in the Eucharist. But even so, it's like, you know, worshiping him in spirit and life. It's like you think about someone like a Maximilian Kolbe stuck in Auschwitz, you know, it's like even still, he can be like part of the body of Christ and still draw strength from our Lord, even though he can't go to the Jerusalem temple. He can't go to church. It's like our Lord still comes to us um, and allows like for that way of being ever closer and present as he's risen from the dead, the temple of his body. Like he, he comes to us. Yes. And as I said before, it's like coming to the church, being with him in the blessed sacrament is so utterly important. 
But even when those circumstances can't be met, our Lord will still come to us. Yeah, and I know this is skipping ahead a little bit with the passion narrative, but when Jesus um, dies on the cross and the um, veil mm -hmm. torn uh, is the top torn from top to the bottom, I mean, why is that? He's re showing that you no longer, you can now enter the Holy of Holies, right? Because I think, if I'm correct, only like the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies at certain times. Yeah. And they actually like tied a rope around you in case you got smitten, smote, killed. Yeah, yeah. by the, like the sight, revelation of God or an angel. Or yeah, like you like died. They didn't have to go in and get your body. They could literally just drag you out of the Holy of Holies. Yeah. So this is a big deal, not being able to enter the place where God dwells. But by that tearing in two, Jesus is saying, well, I've become man. I am one of you, right? I was made flesh and dwelt among you. So there's no longer this separation. And obviously the gates of heaven were open. So not only could we have that closer connection to him here on earth, we can now have that perfect connection with him when we enter heaven. eternal paradise. Exactly. And just one little thing to like kind of point out too, is just that, you know, our Lord reverenced the temple, loved the temple. The apostles continued to go to the temple after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, so, I mean, that, that place where heaven and earth meet in the temple, so it's a very important thing, but eventually, you know, it was, it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. I mean, it was coming down. And so, you know, our Lord, though, doesn't leave us abandoned because we no longer have the temple. Like, once again, just like with the law, he has come to fulfill and, you know, so we're not left orphaned. We're not left alone. In fact, we have it better than they did then. And you can still go to that little tiny part of the Temple of the Whale. Yeah, I've, I've been there. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it was, it was pretty fascinating. So then we get into kind of the one of the big ones, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus saying that he's God, right? Mm -hmm. So again, we're talking about all the kind of conflicts people had with Jesus. He said he was going to tear down the temple. He said he was going to fulfill the law. But obviously the biggest one is what they saw as blasphemy, that he was claiming to be God. Yeah. And I mean, in some small ways, yeah, yeah I mean, that's crazy it's, talk. It's a, it's a shocker. Like you can understand, and you know, we're, we're blessed to have 2,000 years of history looking back. Yeah, I mean, it would be a tough thing. But the interesting thing, though, too, is we've already read, not all the Pharisees thought he was crazy. You know, now some of them like came to him at night. You've got like Nicodemus coming to him or Joseph of Arimathea or some of them thought he was innocent. We'll even kind of get into some of that. So, I mean, it's not as though everybody just wrote him off. Um, but, yeah, I mean, these are some big earth-shattering earth claims. And But he backs it up. Like, you know, like so he forgives sins, but then he tells the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he backs things up with driving out the devil and healing people and feeding the 5,000. I mean, he shows these signs that confirm what's going on as he, you know, forgives sins and continues to show that he is God. And I think you said it really well a little bit earlier, but if only we saw that one sign. Yeah. Like, I hope that if I was one of these Pharisees and I saw the signs of what Jesus was doing, that would be enough for me. Because, you know, we'd say, oh, how could you not? Like, he cured the blind. He... He raised Lazarus from the dead. Like, those are pretty big things. But what Jesus never, you know, even to Thomas, it's not that because you saw that you believe, right? Blessed are those that have yeah. the faith. So even if we saw the miracle, we still need to have faith in the man that performed the miracle. Or really, we should have faith without even seeing the miracle. And I don't know, I, I hope I would have been somebody like, 
Nicodemus coming to him at night, or maybe not even coming yeah. to him at night and just like standing up in the daylight and kind of going against my my brothers in this office. Just but, being like one of the people who actually believed in him. Yeah. Him. Yeah, I know, but it's it's hard, you know, and, and that's the thing. I think we all like to look back on different parts of history and think, wow, I wouldn't have done this. But, you know, you just, you kind of wonder. It's like, you know, would I have been, you know, someone in Nazi Germany, like, risking my life to take care of the Jews? I hope so. I like to think that I would. But I think we all get kind of, like, influenced by the crowd sometimes. And it's like, can I stand up against the crowd? Like, I, I wonder how history is going to judge us looking back. Like, did we do enough for the pro-life cause, you know, like, to take care of the unborn? Like, what were you doing to try to make sure that that happened? You know, and so it's just... Because I think it's easy to look back through a lens and think, I would have never done X. But, you know, we are human beings. We're fallen. We get very influenced by the crowd around us. And it's just good, you know, in humility to look back and be like, well, I hope I would have been one of the ones who would have been like, you other Pharisees are crazy. I'm following Jesus. But, you know, like even with Nicodemus, when he's like, do we judge a man, you know, without actually bringing testimony against him? Like, oh, are you one of his followers too? And it's like it, it kind of keeps him quiet. And, you know, what are the things that, like, can be sort of held over our heads to not be courageous and stand up for the truth? So. And, and a little anecdote, actually, because you mentioned Nazi Germany. Um, I was reading um, George Weigel's article on First Things about the, you know, Russian-Ukraine kind oh, of conflict sure, sure. and his opinion that. on that. And he uh, cited a, the movie uh, Judgment in Nuremberg, which I never heard about, but the Nuremberg trials in, uh, in Germany. There was actually quite a few actors and actresses in that film that I'd heard of. I'm like, oh, like this is a, a big time film. There's a lot of good names in this. And obviously they were still kind of, a lot of them were just starting their careers because wow. it was a fairly old movie. But I was like, hmm, that would be really interesting to watch that and just see like in cinema, obviously. Yeah. But the arguments that were made and how they made those arguments and who stood up and what was kind of some of the risks in the background of standing up at that time um, against the Nazis who are being tried yep. at this time. And yeah, I mean, I don't know, just a side anecdote, I'm going to try to find that movie because it would be super interesting Absolutely. to watch. And I'll say too, and I forget the name of the book, but do you remember I sent you something about um, the Thomas More and John Fisher book that's written by, he's a judge in Charlotte. Yes, yes. He's uh, on the... Um, Conrad, Conrad, Judge Conrad. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm like, I'm probably like 75% through. It is fantastic. Mm. And it's like you think about that, like, you know, all these other bishops who just went along with King Henry VIII, not John Fisher, you know, all these different people just went along with King Henry VIII, not Thomas More, even though, like, Thomas More had had a long history with King Henry VIII mm -hmm. and, you know, all sorts of things. But to stand up for the truth when it is very inconvenient, when you risk losing all sorts of things, and, you know, it, it's hard, you know. And so, you know, to look back on this, and I think, you know, it just kind of goes into um, the next couple of chapters, too, about, you know, uh, okay, it's a, head, it's a heading above 597. Jews are not collectively responsible for Jesus' death. Exactly. I'm just going to read this paragraph, so mm -hmm. it's really good. The historical complexity of Jesus' trial is apparent in the gospel accounts. The personal sin of the participants, Judas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, is known to God alone. Hence, we cannot lay responsibility for the trial on the Jews in Jerusalem as a whole. Despite the outcry of a manipulated crowd and the global reproaches contained in the apostles' calls to conversion after Pentecost, Jesus himself, in forgiving them on the cross, and Peter, in following suit, both accept the ignorance, quote-unquote, of the Jews of Jerusalem and even of their leaders. 
Still less can we extend responsibility to other Jews of different times and places based merely on the crowd's cry, his blood be on us and on our children, a formula for rat ratifying a judicial sentence. As the Church declared at the Second Vatican Council, neither all Jews indiscriminately at that time nor Jews today can be charged with the crimes committed during his passion. The Jews should not be spoken of as rejected or accursed, as if this followed from Holy Scripture. The thing is, we're all part of the human condition, right? We can all get swept up into the crowd. We can all be cowards in the face of, you know, needing to confirm the truth. Um, and so the thing is, it's like, what, what, you know, nailed Jesus to the cross? Well, the next heading, all sinners were the authors of Christ's passion. When I sin, I'm nailing Jesus to the cross again. And I remember one of my buddies in seminary saying, like, this, this confessor that he went to is an Indian priest. And this Indian priest did not have, like, our be concerned about your neighbor's, you know, feeling sensitivity. And I don't know what the guy confessed. He didn't tell me this. But he said that the priest said, oh, you're not nailing Jesus to the cross again, but you are spitting in his face. It's like, dang, you know. But it's like, when you think about it, it's like we have. 2,000 years of church history. We have the fact that Jesus did all this. We know everything that happened. Like, okay, on a certain level, and I'm not saying like Caiaphas is innocent, all, but at the same time, he's in the midst as we were talking about. You know, Jesus is saying these things that are pretty radical. And even though he's, he's performing these miracles, like Caiaphas saying it's better for one man to die than the entire nation. Like, there's all these different mitigating circumstances. And as the Catechism said, uh, just like with Judas, the Sanhedrin Pilate, their personal sin is known to God alone, right? The only one whose personal sin I can really deal with, other than as a confessor, is mine own, right? You know, it's like I have to take responsibility for my own failings, right? Like if I have shame for something, I can't say, oh, the whole system is wrong. Like there should be no sin. Well, guess what? There is sin. I've committed it. I need to own up to it. I need to repent. I need to go to confession and have it forgiven, like, you can't just cast blame on some other group. Like, the devil, who is the accuser, wants that to happen, wants us to be divided. Our Lord did not come to do that, and he forgave us from the cross. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And all we have to do is repent and believe in the gospel. Go to him and say, I'm sorry. And the beautiful thing is, he's going, in this age of mercy, is going to pour out that mercy upon us in the confessional, forgive us, and bring us closer to his sacred heart. And... We also have to remember that it wasn't even the demons that crucified him. Yeah. Like, they were tempting people to do sure. what they did, but no demon can force you to do anything. No. I think even in, like, the most strong possession state, it's like, no, they are still participating with what's going on in this action, or they've tied themselves so closely that, you know, their freedom is lessened, but we have full control over ourselves. This is what, you know, we talked about earlier in the catechism, free will. God can't make us do anything, not even the devil and demons can make us do anything. And this St. Francis of Assisi quote, I put a little start Please, next to this one. do it. Um, very last part of uh, this paragraph 598. This is from St. Francis of Assisi. Nor did demons crucify him. It was you who have crucified him and crucify him still when you delight in your vices and sins. Very much like what Father said, yeah. right? You didn't maybe you didn't nail him on the cross, but you spit in his face, right? And, and I think that's where it's so important too for us to understand the nature of vice and sin, and understand what is a sin and what's not a sin, and what is a vice, what's not. Like, and so to like learn about the moral teaching of the church, to learn about the virtues, to learn about what it is to be free in Christ. Frankly, it's it's the path to happiness. 
I mean, I talked about a little bit of my homily this past week and about how I'm so much happier now than I used to be when I was in high school. Mm, the I, I hate your parents music. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and this is the thing. Like, I've never hated my parents. I love my parents. But it's like, you know, just taking stuff in and like, just say like glorying in vice, right? You're not going to be happy. But to grow in love, to lay down your life, to imitate Christ, is it easy? No, it's not. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Like I said, last night, I sat in the confessional for two hours. Um, our confessional seats are not comfortable. And I'm not saying that because I think we need to put it into the budget to add in cushions. Like, I'm fine to sit there. I'm not in there to be comfortable. I'm in there to cooperate with our Lord to forgive sins. And it is awesome. And I've had to grow into, let's say, two-hour confessional shape. You know, it's like, like anything. You don't just jump into like, I'm going to pray three rosaries today. Like, you know, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a whole holy hour. Our prayer life, like it takes, it takes work. It takes exercise. It takes building that up. But as long as you're climbing the mountain, you're moving in the right direction, let's say you never pray ever. You know what? Today, start by making a really good intentional sign of the cross. Pay attention to it. Say the words. Think about our Lord. You're like, well, it's not very much. You know what? It's a whole lot more than nothing. You know, it's like you've got to start somewhere. And it's like, I love the, uh, the phrase, like, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You know, it's like, you, you got to start. And so what I would say, you know, is like, is, is we all have, you know, our vices, our sins. And it's like, as we gradually learn to shed those and embrace virtue, to embrace the cross, to embrace our Lord, it's going to lead to more and more happiness. And so it's a total cop-out to be like, oh, the world's problems are on these people. Or, you know, it's like you mentioned the Russians. No, you're wrong. I know there's crazy stuff going on right now. But the best thing you can do to make the world a better place, drop sin and vice, become a saint. I think that's the best thing any of us can do. And you can actually do that. Exactly. I mean, it's just, oh, look at I only have to fix me. Exactly. And if I fix me and everyone fixes me, not you all fix me, <laughs> you fix you, me fix me, um, then yeah, that's, yeah, that's the best way to, to do it. We want to make this place a saint factory. As Father always said. It's our goal. We can do whatever we want. But unless you look at yourselves and your sin and your vice, go to confession, live a virtuous life, we can, we can be yeah. a sounding horn and a clanging cymbal. And it's not going to do any good. No. And so, of course, there's going to be other people who affect you, who do things to you that are bad and terrible. And, and I get that. You know, like, hey, yeah, I've been offended by some things, too. But nevertheless, like I'm not in control of them, but I'm in control of how I respond, right? And to look to our Lord, who as we see in all of this, he didn't stay up on the mountain of transfiguration. He didn't stay home in Galilee. He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem and went there where he would be spat upon, his beard would be plucked, he would be nailed to the cross. And what did he say? Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He sets the standard. He is a God who shows us the way, gives us the grace to do it, the only thing he won't do is force you. You have to say yes. And I just say, make sure you say yes. And I don't think there's anything else to be said. That is, that is a wrap, folks. I think so, too. You know, I think the first 600 paragraphs went pretty well. Oh, my goodness. I think we did pretty well. This is. Can this you believe that this was month 12 of our series? Next month, when we get to back together, it's been our one-year anniversary. How exciting is that? So I think we might have a beer next time. And feel free to join us in a beer. I think, that'd be great. I think we have to, a celebratory so. beer. I'll bring my pints of a corn as mug if you bring your pints of a corn. Ooh, I will. Smoke. That's yeah. a good idea. We'll show, we'll show, show our more. Forget. 
We'll show off our uh, swag. Yeah, and we'll salute Matt Frad and Father Gregory Pine. Because they kind of, in, in some small ways, I yeah. think they kind of encourage us to do some of this. I think so, too. We appreciate what they do, and really kind of all podcast people that we listen to. I think between the two of us, we at least have five or six apiece that we follow. It's true. We listen to quite a few. And I would say, too, who else I appreciate is the people who are listening and tuning in. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things with, with the new media and the ability to do this, it's not like it's Mike One Eye on Thursday night at 6 o'clock and the 15 people who can come and have some cheese cubes as we talk about catechism. Like The fact that so many come back and watch, because we've had decent numbers, right? Yeah, and I mean, these things stay out forever. forever. Yeah. And we're not famous, and we're never going to be famous. I know oh. we, joked about, we joke about that sometimes, but you know what? It's just nice to say this is out there. Yeah. Like, just... We did this thing, and yeah. if you want to participate in the thing and listen to our thing, fantastic. And if you don't, who cares? Yeah, it's okay. We have fun doing this. We do. And we do it for people to listen. And if people want to listen, I hope they enjoy and learn. And if they don't, well, call us up. We can yeah. have you as a guest next There time. you go. Well, and the thing that's nice about it, too, is one of the best ways to learn something is to teach it. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate needing to read 50 paragraphs of the Catechism every month. I've, I've never read the oh, full catechism. No, it's, so it's been a long time for me. In another three and a half years, we will have officially, can you believe it? We were joking like four and a half years. We're, we're down a year. Yeah. Three and a half years. We're going to do the whole thing. It's going to be great. So uh, just say, know that every day, praying for you, love Sacred Heart, and all of our people who have kind of joined in from outside of the Sacred Heart, friendly confines. Uh, we got one giant, great big universal Catholic church. And to get to come together and discuss the catechism and the great treasure of our faith. Hey, let's keep living the full treasure of the faith and praying for all those poor people who don't have the treasure already or haven't opened their hearts to it. Because, man, I, there's no greater gift. As I pray to our Lord every day in the Blessed Sacrament, never let me be parted from you. Hey, let's invite as many people in there that they too might be unified toward our Lord. And remember, we're like Chick-fil-A. We have confession every day but Sunday. I'm going to use that so much now. I, I love, it's a great... I'm sure you never great, heard me say I don't it know why I haven't heard it before. I said it at Mass, I think. So, yeah. I mean, oh, well. I don't listen to all your homilies. Uh, I do have three kids that I'm juggling <laughs> around. I mean, I'm lucky if I get like half the homily. But, you know. I understand. All right, let's, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Let's do it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, with grateful hearts for the gift of our faith, we pray. Glory be to the Father, and to, to the, the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary. Pray for us. Saint Joseph. Pray for us. Saint Francis of Assisi. Pray for us. Saint Sebastian. Pray for us. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.